This episode of New Politics was released on the 12th of November, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajak people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the politics of industrial relations, an international climate change conference in Egypt but no sign of Anthony Albanese, Scott Morrison back in the spotlight with more bad behaviour, and it's really time for a Royal Commission into News Corporation. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, know-it-all. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au. And all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. There's a lot of issues that are starting to build up in federal politics and with just a few more weeks of sitting days before the end of the year, the Labor government is trying to fit in as much as possible before they all go home for Christmas. And the major issue that they're trying to push through as quickly as possible is their industrial relations bill. And the main agenda here is to increase wages, especially for low-income workers, improve working conditions and create a better balance between the rights of business and the rights of workers. And all of this to me sounds quite reasonable, but... Employer groups are not happy about it. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, has come out to say that it will take industrial relations backwards and unions will hold businesses to ransom. And this is just the usual banter that we get from business groups and the Liberal Party who won't be happy until workers are paid just $2 a day and can be sacked at whim and maybe even then they won't be happy. But the Labor Party was created through the unions and is the one that is supposed to support workers' rights whenever it gets into government. So it can't be really that much of a surprise that these changes to industrial relations are going to be made. We've got the usual, oh, this is the unions taking over the Labor Party, even if it's what the Labor Party was meant to do. You never hear this is vested business interests taking over the Liberal Party, even though that's perfectly valid from that angle although the Liberal Party pretend that it wasn't started by vested business interests. It, it was. The right type of people have been offended by it, I think. Not that anybody really cares what Peter Dutton has to say, but if he said this was a good thing, we'd have to look at it a bit more sceptically, I think. And if the Business Council of Australia said, no, this is exactly what we were after, you'd have to think something was a bit wrong. And again, I'm not being anti-business here necessarily. I'm just saying that Business Council believes that wages are too big an expense, despite all the evidence that wages are one of the few things that give a guaranteed return in a way that investment in plant and equipment don't. It was a positive thing for the Labor Party to do. Now, it'll be interesting to see what will happen in the Senate. On the face of it, the Greens should be happy with it, but they may have issues with it and force a change. The numbers could go in the Senate that the right are able to force changes, if not stop it altogether. I don't think that can happen, but I don't think the, the discussion has stopped yet. 
Well, there's always going to be a bit of political dynamics that comes into it, whether it's the Labor government that introduces industrial relations changes or whether it's the coalition that introduces their own version of industrial relations. But there's also many elements of Labor's industrial relations bills that are positive for workers and it's generally what you'd expect to see from a Labor government. There's multi-employer bargaining for low-income earners, so that would be in the areas of early education and aged care and that's where workers are not highly unionised and they're not very well represented in the workplace. There's also a stronger role for the Fair Work Commission to arbitrate in intractable disputes. There's a better facility to claim for underpayment and unpaid wages and there's a role for equal pay for equal work and gender equity. And there's also provisions for more flexible working arrangements based around what happened during the COVID pandemic, things such as people being able to work from home. So all of this sounds very reasonable. And who wouldn't want all of those things in their workplace? But the media response has been predictable. They're mainly echoing the points of the business sector, that it's all controversial, it will destroy the economy. And of course, the coalition has been using this to drive its anti-union rhetoric as well. And this idea that the unions are going to take over the Labor government or take over Australia or destroy small business. This type of sledgehammer megaphone speak, that might have worked in the 1970s, but in 2022, to me, it just seems like it's empty rhetoric that doesn't really mean that much. In many ways, we're still fighting the the battles of the 50s, 60s and 70s. The more um, strident, I think is the best word, of right-wing commentators still rail about socialism and communism like they were a threat even then, and they're even less of a threat now. We still get a lot of pre-1989 arguments over, and really pre-Hawk, pre-1983 arguments over the dangerous unions and the corrupt unions and the they'll go out on strike and it will destroy the economy when the union movement has modified. And of course, before you think I'm letting the more strident left off, there is that element of the left who will engage at the level of, oh, it's communists and it, we're not communists and go back to a, you know, Norm Gallagher of the, the Builders Labor's Federation. It's like we're going back to that and it gets very strident and very heated and very angry, but not very relevant. The workplace has changed, whether for better or for worse is for a whole other discussion. And in some ways it has changed for the better, you know, let's not be churlish, and in some ways it's changed for the worse. Less security, say, in jobs, but more flexibility in those jobs that you do have, for example. There's all of that. But we don't discuss things from a modern workplace. And of course, if you're in a modern job and they say, oh, unions want to do this and want to do that, people who maybe aren't as engaged as they'd like to be and are only getting those sound bites start to worry. And of course, that's the whole strategy of the media, not to have, of the mainstream media, not to have long, thoughtful and deep analysis of what's going on, but to get people thinking in sound bites. Sound bites being union bad companies good, corporations always good, big corporations better. Again, it gets down to I wish our media would grow up. So the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill, that's what it's actually called, it's absolutely massive. It's 249 pages of proposed legislation and to me that suggests that industrial relations is probably a little bit too complex but the Australian workforce is complex so maybe that's just the way that it has to be. The bill did go through some amendments and has been passed by the lower house and the sticking point in the Senate might be the single interest stream and that's where workers and unions can negotiate in industries where there is a common interest and again that's the type of issue 
that would relate to early education workers and aged care workers who usually work in smaller enterprises and don't have too much clout in the workplace. And if the Greens support the legislation, and you referred to this before, David, it would then be up to Senators Jackie Lambie or David Pocock to support the legislation. And based on what she said during the week, I don't think the government can depend on the support from Jackie Lambie. If you don't think there's going to be more strikes, then blow me over. I can tell you what, I'll put 100% on it. It will cause more strikes. It'll be more difficult for the country. We've got to find a medium here. And I'll tell you what, the unions won't be getting it all their goddamn way. I'm about bloody had enough of them. Labor wants this legislation enacted before the end of the year and it might all get down to the support from David Pocock, not necessarily Jackie Lambie, and he's already said that he wants more time to assess the bill. So there might be still a long way to go on this legislation. That a senator wants to spend more time looking at a bill should be commended because there's a whole lot of senators who just vote the way they're told without actually doing any work. Both Jackie Lambie and David Pocock are unpredictable in a sense. We don't know enough about Pocock. I assume that he is slightly to the right in his views of things, but not all things. Jackie Lambie is wildly inconsistent in her views in terms of uh, on something she is very much to the left, on other things she is very much to the right, and those things can change week to week. I'm not questioning her honesty here. There seems to be a lack of rigour. I don't quite know enough about Pocock, and it would be easy to say, oh, he's a sportsman, so he doesn't know much. But one, that's unfair. There have been sports people in Parliament who've done actually a really superb job. Uh, Hubert Oppenheimer, the cyclist. Corey Bernardi. Corey Bernardi, sure. (laughs) I was thinking more um, Glenn Lazarus, Senator for Queensland, did a really good job. So it's not really about, I'm not going to stereotype people. I just don't know enough about David Pocock. And what he said has been a mix of progressivism, if you like, if for want of a better word, and what we might call Australian liberalism. Or, and that's fine too. He was elected to get rid of a fairly underperforming senator, shall we say, that the people of the ACT didn't like. But we're still trying to get a handle on his approach. And this type of legislation and, and his reaction to it will be really telling. Is he just another seat warmer or is he a a senator with something substantial to contribute for good or for evil? Well, there's also different business lobby groups who are up in arms about Labor's industrial relations bill, but part of that is the political pantomime that they usually go through, but everything that they are arguing against can easily be refuted. There's record levels of corporate profits, and there's been a continuous stream over the past five or six years. Executive bonuses are up as well, and during the week we had the CEO of Qantas, Alan Joyce, receive a $4 million bonus. And after the performance of Qantas over the past year or two, a lot of people might be thinking, well, what's that bonus for? Here's what the head of the ACTU, Sally McManus, had to say about this. Profits are up and workers are not getting that. CEO bonuses are up. Simply, if those big businesses had to give people a fair pay rise, and that's all we're asking for, your customers will have money to spend. If your customers don't have money to spend, they cut back on spending and that is bad for small business. 
And on top of this, the Australian Resources and Energy Employer Association, they said that it will fund a media campaign to attack this industrial relations bill, similar to the $122 million advertising campaign the mining industry used to attack the Rudd government in 2010. And this is an industry that pays very little tax and actually received $11 billion in taxpayer-supported subsidies. And that's not just in total. That's the amount that it receives each and every year. In the 2021 tax year, Chevron had a revenue of $30 billion in Australia and only paid $30 in tax. And you think, well, why would you even bother with that? But even that $30 in tax is more than what Woodside, Santos and two subsidiaries of Shell paid on revenue of $138 billion during that year. They paid zero tax, absolutely zero to the Australian government. And they've got the hire to pay for an advertising campaign against low-income workers getting a pay rise. And just to put that in context, just one of those low-income workers who earns $40,000 in a year, they paid more tax in one day than any of these multinational corporations who earn $138 billion in a year. It's absolutely outrageous. If you spend $350 on groceries, you've paid more tax than Santos in GST. This is how appalling it is. And I know that there are people out there who say, oh, big business, the tax system set up so that, you know, there's the incentive to earn money. What incentive does a company have to earn money when it's that big? It's already earned money and it'll keep earning money. We could kick all of these people out of Australia and we'd still have the mining industry because others would come in and pay the tax. I've said that before. I don't quite understand why a government would let all that revenue slip through its fingers, except, of course, it doesn't want the revenue and doesn't believe that government should tax. The whole taxation is theft lie. Now, that explains the last government. The current government, okay, they're new. I know all that. I'm not going to... They can't do everything at once. I know all that. Plus, they have political considerations to balance. I know all that too. But you'd hope that somewhere in the the future of economic policy is sorting out the tax system so that if you're on $30 billion a year, you could pay 5 or 6 or $7 billion and still have more money than most of Australia will ever see in a lifetime, working Australia. I also say that you tax uh, your bonuses at 90 or 100%. That means that somebody like Alan Joyce, who may have performed well in the board's eye, but has performed badly in the public eye, is giving back to the Australian people, whether he likes it or not. He's not the only one. I should be clear on that too. But Qantas seem to like to promote the fact that they've in the opinion of a lot of the public, overpaid and underperforming CEO. And studies have shown that the more the CEO gets paid, the worse the company seems to do. There is a correlation there.
And COP27 is being held in Egypt this week, and that's the annual United Nations Climate Change Conference. It is an important conference, but people who want global action on climate change are becoming impatient and now suggesting that it's more of an annual greenwashing event, and it's hard to argue against that if Coca-Cola is sponsoring the event. But this is the 27th COP event, and global action is as slow as a snail at the moment, if not slower. Australia's Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, he's not actually attending COP27, and the Energy Minister, Chris Bowen, is attending instead. But last year, Albanese pilloried and pressured Scott Morrison to go to COP26, to which he did end up attending, and that ended up being a waste of time anyway. Australia's presence there was sponsored and supported by fossil fuel industries, but Albanese has decided not to attend this year and we can argue that Albanese's ministerial team when compared to Scott Morrison's team is more than capable but I think Albanese should be there as well. He can't argue that the Prime Minister should have gone last year and then this year argue that he can't be in two places at the same time. The young Liberals of all people were arguing that Australia was ignoring COP27 and it was pointed out to them that in fact two senior ministers have gone across and Commentators, uh, among others, Greta Thunberg, have said it's just greenwashing. I'd have thought that you might get up and give a scathing speech on how it is greenwashing and how you have to do better. And I know speeches don't achieve much, but the symbolic weight of a speech can work wonders. And two, I know that the job of Prime Minister means that things crop up at the last moment and you can't all of that. And we know that Anthony Albanese is actually doing the job of Prime Minister as opposed to his predecessor, who wasn't. There's that as well, I suppose. But he could have gone, and I think he he probably should have gone. What happens is that when the Prime Minister goes, they give a speech. And so this was clearly a chance to give Australia full and proper representation, let's be fair, but without actually having to commit to very much. And I think that's something that future generations are, are not going to appreciate. Well, there were those criticisms of Airbus Albo from the media for all of those other trips he's done ever since he became Prime Minister. But if you made climate change a big issue during the last election campaign and then not show up to the first major international climate change forum since you became Prime Minister, I think that's a pretty bad decision. Now, Australia has improved its position on targets since last year and the Labor government has increased its emissions reduction target to 43 percent by 2030 and that's still not enough and that promise of becoming a renewables superpower that's got to start somewhere but it wasn't even mentioned in the recent budget so governments I think can either take this seriously or not and we do keep getting those reminders of the lack of action on climate change over the past 30 or 40 years those recent floods in Pakistan the heat waves and fires in Europe Hurricane Ian in the United States and closer to home the floods in eastern Australia The head of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, had this to say at COP27. The clock is ticking. We are in the fight of our lives and we are losing. Greenhouse gas emissions keep growing. Global temperatures keep rising. And our planet is fast approaching tipping points that will make climate chaos irreversible. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. So, David, we're on the highway to hell. It's the first time that I've heard ACDC refer to at an international conference, but that's the way that it goes. But this is the same message that we had last year. 
and the year before that. It's the same message that we had the year before that and then the year before that as well, that something needs to be done and has to be done soon. But at this rate, nothing's ever going to happen really. There's that wonderful scene in Life of Brian where the uh, Judean people's front in the meeting and they're talking about how action needs to happen and that we need to stop talking about things and go out and do things because all we do is talk and talk and then they make a motion to put in an agenda point to discuss some further action down the track. And, of course, at the end of the film, spoiler alert, uh, when Brian is hanging on the cross, the action they have is to applaud him and thank him for a job well done. (laughs) And, of course, it's funny because it's true. And talk is cheap. Talk is easy. And I know that the speechwriters will write into us and say, but, you know, we were up for three weeks straight writing those speeches. Yes, I know, but talk is cheap and talk is easy. Unless something substantial comes out of this stuff, as somebody wise once said, and I wish I knew who it was, there's a reason that there's a highway to hell but only a stairway to heaven. The easy choice, of course, is to not change. And we're past that point. We've had more floodings in New South Wales and Western Australia, thunderstorms, unseasonably hot, the whole thing. And this is years now. We're heading for our fifth once-in-a-hundred-year rainfall in two years. Oh, and also, I don't think it's enough to say that Australia is now doing more on climate change compared to what the coalition did, which was close to nothing. So anything is going to be an improvement, but it's mm. still not enough. And Australia is currently lobbying to host COP31, and that's in 2026. But if it continues to keep opening up new gas and coal mines, it doesn't really have that much credibility on managing climate change issues. And the Labor government keeps saying that it will continue to support new gas and coal projects that stack up. But that's the message that they've had over the past decade without actually saying what they mean by stack up. And I do realise that all of these things cannot change overnight. But the best thing that Australia could do at the moment for the world environment is to stop exporting coal. And opening up new mines contradicts their words and actions on climate change. And again, I know that there's a lot of interests to balance in the ALP, but if you want to be taken seriously, you've got to act seriously. And I also know it's easy for me to sit here in my uh, mansion in the luxurious Sydney suburb of Belmore and direct this, but we need to keep the pressure up on them. We need to continually remind them that they're not there for marginal vested interests, that they're there for everybody. Praise them for the good stuff they do, or at least uh, congratulate them for the good stuff they do. And this is true for the Liberal Party too, but we've got to keep on them till they improve. No government will ever be perfect, but we can be a bit less imperfect than we are at the moment. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music or find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. And please share, comment or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. Living easy, living free A season beggar on a one-way ride Asking nothing, leave me be Check out everything in my stride I don't need reason, don't need rhyme Ain't got nothing that I'd rather do Going down for the time My friends
and the actions of the previous Morrison government are back in the spotlight again. The Robo-Debt Royal Commission is revealing more and more information about this scheme and it's quite damaging to the reputation of Scott Morrison and to the Liberal Party and it actually might lead to more than just damage to reputation. There's a wide range of illegal action that seems to have taken place. There's a lot of cover-up going on as well. We're also hearing a lot of plausible deniability from senior public servants and bureaucrats saying that they didn't have the courage to approach Scott Morrison to talk about the illegality of the scheme and thought that the scheme had actually been cancelled for some reason. Not sure what they'd think that because even the rest of the world knew that the robo-debt had been implemented and had been running for several years but maybe there really is a Canberra bubble after all but this Royal Commission will run its course and will find out whatever it needs to find out but one curious issue is the lack of coverage of this Royal Commission in the media. This is illegality committed by a Liberal Party government. Over 2,000 people committed suicide as a result of receiving robo-debt notices and it ultimately cost taxpayers $1.8 billion in compensation payments but the home pages of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Herald Sun in Melbourne, Courier Mail in Brisbane, that's where the Royal Commission is actually taking place, they have absolutely no material about the Royal Commission and their reporting has been scarce overall. The ABC has given some coverage with most of the reporting coming from The Guardian and the Saturday paper and In comparison to the Royal Commissions into trade unions and the Pink Bats insulation schemes, which had blanket media coverage, there's not much interest from the media in the RoboDebt Royal Commission. It shows just how awfully appalling the last government was. All the advice they got was that it was illegal and that it wouldn't get them any money. It made them sound tough. Alan Tudge, that third-rate nobody mediocrity of a person, in fact, I've just received an email from the third-rate nobody mediocrities of Australia saying, please don't lump us in with him. Even we have standards. Claiming that we'll hunt you down like he's Liam Neeson in Taken or something. Scott Morrison, even worse, because I genuinely believe that Tudge believed he wasn't doing anything wrong. Morrison knew but thought that God had given him permission, so even worse. It's just appalling. And it again, it's Morrison's own thoughtless belligerence that he must be right and that this will give him all the very best kudos when of course it's shown him up to be the disgrace he was as prime minister well he is getting all the blame for this program and Mm. he was the one that implemented the scheme so of course he should but the thinking behind the robo debt scheme that first commenced under the abbott government and it was implemented during the term of the turnbull government and then continued under morrison when he became the prime minister so all of those prime ministers i think are implicated in the failure and the illegality of the robo debt scheme and they probably all did know that it was all illegal and they were certainly told and this was a massive story when the news about the illegalities of the robo-debt first became public knowledge a few years ago i think it's about two years ago now and and now that all the news is coming out about the background to the robo-debt scheme the media is running away from it it's been reported a little bit here and there rick morton from the saturday paper he's been reporting about the royal commission every single day 
But because it's causing trouble for the Liberal Party, the mainstream media seems to be generally staying away from it. And this is a big story. The media makes its money by covering the big story. So even when it's in its financial interest to do so, the mainstream media decides to protect Liberal Party interests rather than generate some more income for itself. And we can see that the Labor government is starting to make more political noise about this. They've been asking more questions about it in Parliament and the opposition seem to forget that they weren't in government anymore and tried to close down the debate. But I think that the Labor government needs to make a lot of political mileage out of this. The Royal Commission into Trade Unions and the Pink Ban Insulation Scheme, that was a witch hunt, and the media took every opportunity to report on that. But a Royal Commission into robo-debt, that's got many more issues to investigate than who paid for Julia Gillard's $20,000 bathroom renovation 20 years ago, and that's what the Royal Commission into Trade Unions investigated and found absolutely nothing Robo-debt was a far more insidious government scheme and affected over 400,000 people, so it's got to be drawn out for as long as possible, I think. And didn't we find that Julia Gillard paid for her own bathroom renovation using legally gained salary? But nonetheless, it was private firms. It was 20 years ago and it was completely irrelevant. It's quite possible that we will see charges laid. I don't think we will. Again, governments have to be very careful with oppositions and how they treat them because of precedent. You don't want to set a precedent of every time a new government gets in, they start charging the old government for crimes both imagined and real and retrospective. But when things have happened, nobody is above the law. The other thing too is that this is probably the measure of the popularity of the man. The Liberal Party is blaming Scott Morrison a great deal for a whole lot of stuff. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't deserve a whole lot of blame, but he's not the only one. But they are using him as a scapegoat, sure, but you guys put him in and then you kept him there. And a lot of you are doing very similar stuff anyway. So it's not as clear-cut as Scott Morrison is the sole reason for the malaise of the Liberal Party. He's a big one, yes. I'm not going to say leave the poor bloke alone, for example. And when Tony Abbott lost both the leadership and then when he lost his seat, there was a lot of, I'll leave the poor bloke alone, but Tony dished it out too. So there's that. With Scott Morrison, there's been a lot more. Yeah, it was his fault and now he's gone, we've improved instantly which I think is a way of avoiding responsibility. I will be fair to not all of the Liberal Party. Some of the post-election stuff they did was really good and really insightful about why they lost and how they could improve things. So it's not, it's not everybody in the Liberal Party. I, I will be fair there. The Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, he also issued a cease and desist letter to Scott Morrison warning him not to release any more confidential details about National Cabinet or any other government secrets from the time that he was in government, of course. And Mark Dreyfus will also investigate to see whether there was any criminal behaviour when Scott Morrison released details to two news corporation journalists that were later published in a book. Now, there's probably a bit of political motivation going on here. It's a case where the Labor government wants to keep reminding the electorate about the bizarre nature of Scott Morrison's time as the Prime Minister. But I think it's a point that does need to keep being made. Aside from the incompetence and poor management and all the corruption that was occurring, there were 
were also the secret ministries that Morrison signed himself up for. There were also those deals with the Governor-General to allocate $18 million towards that weird leadership program that didn't keep any minutes for all of its meetings. There were no records kept at all, but it was just going to keep getting $18 million of funding each year to a bogus leadership program. So I think these sort of activities should never, ever happen again. And the public just needs to keep being reminded about this so it just never does happen again. Having said you've got to be careful with governments, have to be careful with oppositions. Illegality and impropriety is still illegality and impropriety. Whether you are Governor General or whether you are podcast host, there you are. (laughs) The law should be applied fairly and justly and equally across the board. And we know that that's not 100% true, but if they're taking the law seriously, they will consider all options. I don't know that he's going to get away with it this time. I think there's also another point which shows just how weak the media in Australia actually is. The journalists who Morrison revealed all of those details about the secret ministries to, and that's Simon Benson and Jeff Chambers from News Corporation, they've actually been nominated for the Walkley Award in the best scoop category. And it was so much of a scoop that they sat on the news for two years and waited for the Liberal Party to lose office so it wouldn't cause any damage to the Liberal Party during an election campaign. So this would be a little bit like the Washington Post deciding to wait for Richard Nixon to lose office before they release the Watergate stories. And the Walkley Awards have got form on this. They awarded the best scoop prize to Sherry Markson. She's also from News Corporation, and that was for the story about Barnaby Joyce and his relationships with his personal staffers. And the only problem in that case was that it was a story that was actually released by independent media a year before Sherry Markson published that story, and that was released by the journalist Sirkan Ozturk. So that's outright plagiarism and and I really don't think that the Walkley Awards can be taken seriously as a measure of good journalism anymore. I'm uneasy about awards given for people doing their jobs, particularly glamour awards. I tend to agree with Ricky Gervais who said something along the lines of you have the most fun you can ever have, get paid more money than most people will ever see and then you want an award for it. Now I know that's not true that journalism isn't always fun and you don't get paid more than most people, well, you do get paid more than most people uh, if you're in a decent job with one of the bigger firms. But they're not war correspondents. The stories that they broke didn't help people materially outside the profession. They weren't jobs above and beyond. And as, as you rightly point out, that stuff about the secret ministries, that stuff about, well, that stuff, it was explosive and it should have come out straight away. And not wait till after the election. And then they awarded them for that. If I was a managing editor, I'd have sacked them on the spot. That is way too good to wait for a book that, let's be frank, no one's going to read. And sure, they could argue, oh, but look at all the clicks we got from people looking at it. But it's not news then, it's, it's history. And history is important, but we needed to know that history at the time it was happening, not two years later when it was less relevant. I think the Walkley people need to think about what they award these things for. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can also donate to New Politics through Patreon. 
And please share, comment or add a review. It helps other listeners find our podcast. I hear hurricanes I know the end is coming soon I feel rivers overflow I hear the voice of raisin room Don't go out tonight Cause it's bound to take your life And speaking of how inept the mainstream media is in Australia, the Herald Sun has excelled again in its attacks on the Victoria Premier, Daniel Andrews, and it's still running with a story about a car accident with a cyclist from nine years ago, but at least it's gone to some more recent history where it's regurgitated a story from 12 months ago when Daniel Andrews fell down a flight of stairs and made it seem like something seriously untoward was going on. And here's Daniel Andrews' response to the story. There's not much that surprises me, really. But, look, can any of you tell me what the point of this story is? Oh, I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know what the point of this story is. Can any of you explain it to me? It seems to be a Well, maybe, well, I don't know. What, you're going to interview the stairs next? Like, people can go as low as they want. I'm not coming there with them. And Kevin Rudd has now entered the fray by accusing News Corporation of dog whistling to conspiracy theorists. There's a lot that's going on here. News Corporation is digitally altering photographs. It's publishing complete lies. And this is replicating their campaign from Fox News in the United States. And it's completely distorting everything. Last year, Kevin Rudd did call for a Royal Commission into media concentration, and while the Labor government might be busy with quite a few other matters at the moment, fixing up the economy, looking at wages growth, industrial relations, climate change, corruption, it will have to do something about News Corporation because it's an out-of-control media organisation and it's becoming a menace to society. They're frightened of News Corp. Take their licence off them and there's nothing to be frightened of, and any court case will last years in the court done right so they can't operate a license and with the little resources they'd have left they'd be oh free speech free speech free speech ask for example hugh grant ask the parents of the little girl whose phone got hacked and they accidentally deleted the message giving the parents false hope ask any person of note who's been wrongly accused and then gratified by a small payment and an apology paragraph on page 10 of the paper. Or you can ask Elton John with We're Sorry Elton on the front page. Anyone who's crossed the wrong paths with News Corp will tell you that they are a bad and evil organisation. There's no excuse for it in a country with full access to the internet. And instead of being scared of them, they should just be contemptuous of them, give them six months to explain why they deserve a licence and then strip them of their licence. Oh, I wouldn't even give them six months, but it's obvious that News Corporation has been radicalised. There's pretty much no other way to describe it. If you do a search for Daniel Andrews on Google Video, and if you don't believe me, Google it, mate. But the first five pages of search results brings up 
anti-Daniel Andrews material published by News Corporation and it's all totally negative and all of the News Corporation coverage of the Victoria election is 100% negative for the Labor Party and 100% positive for the Liberal Party and media outlets do have a responsibility to publish fair, accurate and balanced material and of course you can have different perspectives and different proprietors will have different angles that they want to look at either from a progressive perspective or a conservative perspective, maybe both or anywhere in between but news outlets are meant to be a record of events and sure it can be from those different perspectives but to tell outright lies that's totally unacceptable. News Corporation is not behaving responsibly and something doesn't to change the pattern is of course is that the grandfather builds it the son expands it and the third generation kills it and this does look like what is going to happen to news corp but we're still another 10 or 15 years away from that really it's beyond crisis point we need a media and it's not really about that they are right-leaning not that long ago the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, and I think the Herald Sun in Melbourne, the first four pages were factual news. And then the opinion pages were all the extreme right-ish opinion. But the opinion has moved further and further to the front pages, disguised as news. And you'd be able to do things like see what happened in Parliament that day. There'd be a, a good and competent report on the Speaker open proceedings. A Prime Minister said this, the Leader of the Opposition replied. There was debate which went this way. And then six pages later, you'd have Andrew Bolt or whomever. But those first few pages were actually fairly valuable. That doesn't happen anymore. The emotive, factually wrong headlines, just this side of defamation and way over the line of truth in journalism laws, if we had them, which is why they don't want them. And maybe that's the way you get rid of News Corp. You bring in truth in journalism laws. It'd be interesting to see how many of the big players survive after a few highly expensive court cases going against them. And a few people have asked us, well, what should happen from now on? I think the time is right for the Labor government to implement a Royal Commission. That's probably not enough, but maybe not so much into media concentration, although that's a very, very important issue. But what other assets do these owners have? And not many people realise that the main assets of Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes are actually not in media. They're actually in resources and petrochemical. And they use the media to wage wars against Labor governments of all persuasions so that they can get conservative governments that give them pretty much what they want in all of these other industries. So maybe new regulations need to look at overall assets of media proprietors so that for example, if you own Seven West or Nine Media or News Corporation, well, you just run the media. You don't run resource companies. You don't have petrochemical interests. You don't run aged care homes, which is what Kerry Stokes does in Perth. And you don't have gambling interests, which is what News Corporation is getting into with its new, better gambling company. And this is the main reason why these media companies aggressively target the Labor Party. It's not like they just want the Liberal Party in office because they like the colour blue or they like supporting Conservative governments. These are the people that they can do business with and get support for all of their other financial and vested interests. So that's the starting point. And then we can look at regulating media behaviour. I think that someone's going to get shot soon with this unhinged behaviour from News Corporation in Melbourne. Somebody's got to step in and say enough is enough. And more journalists are starting to call out the behaviour of News Corporation. Rowan Connolly, he's a sports journalist who used to write for The Age in Melbourne when it was owned by Fairfax, and here's what he had to say. 
One of the things you really notice, the more you come across the garbage spewing from the mouths of any of the ever-burgeoning cabal of right-wing shock jocks in this country, is just how little they have in their kit bags. Let's see, there's culture wars, there's protecting their own or vested interests, and then there's culture wars. Wash, rinse, repeat. So it's perhaps not too surprising when you hear their effective spiritual leaders, the Murdoch family, banging the same drum. And yet you still just shake your head at the sheer chutzpah and hypocrisy of so much of what they say. And so it was when Lachlan Murdoch, he who will be king, addressed the Institute of Public Affairs last week about the erosion of so-called good old Aussie values. Launching the IPA-backed Centre for the Australian Way of Life, and isn't that a title already guaranteed to make you gag? Little Rupert declared, and I quote, Our core values, our successes, and even our history are under constant attack. And three guesses who's to blame. Don't worry, you only need two. The ABC, of course, and so-called media elites. Hang on, I hear you ask, given that the family business in News Corp owns just short of 70% of Australian media, wouldn't Lachlan and co actually be the very definition of media elites? Well, no, because you see, elites in this case only ever means groups of people with whom the Murdochs don't agree or whom stand in the way of their business interests. I think the public has just had enough and Anthony Albanese needs to use the threat of a Royal Commission into media ownership to bring News Corporation into line or actually introduce a Royal Commission and I have a word to their editors that if they're not prepared to change, that their licence to broadcast and to publish will be revoked. And governments have got the ability to do this. So it's time for Albanese to start using this power. It's just reached a point where the behaviour of News Corporation is totally unacceptable and it's just doing too much damage to Australian politics. It's not really about the political swing it has. I've said in the past, I used to read right-wing journals such as Quadrant and The Spectator, not because I agreed with them, but because often they had things that were worthwhile say. They made me question my own approach to things in a good way. They kept me sceptical. They let me know what was going on on the other side. <laughs> there was often some really good work in them. As we've become more and more divided, they've become less essential reading, just the same old nonsense that you could find on the page of every other right-wing journal in Australia. And I'll be fair to I don't read a lot of political left stuff religiously like I used to either because there's no discussion anymore. It's just hectoring from both sides. It becomes useless. We've seen the extreme and before people say, oh, you know, it doesn't happen in Australia. One, we can look at the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband in United States, hyped up by Trumpist media which has a surprisingly similar ownership profile to the media in Australia. And I truly hope it doesn't happen. And I suspect it mightn't, but it's not out of the realms of possibility that someone might have a go at Dan Andrews. The instant experts who came out and said, oh, you couldn't hurt yourself falling down those steps, have clearly never seen anyone fall down a set of steps, clearly never seen anyone fall over and hit the wrong angle. And yet this stuff gets doesn't get laughed away as ridiculousness. People think of it and think, oh, yeah, there, there was only two steps. How badly could you hurt, hurt yourself? Quite badly indeed, as it happens. People have died from less. Anything to damage the reputation of Dan Andrews. And I wouldn't like it if this type of untruth was being said about the other side. Now, to be fair, there's plenty of true stuff that's horrifying about the other side. <laughs> 
but my point is is that if there's bad stuff happening you don't need to make it up you can tell the truth and the truth will give you everything you need to know that's it for this episode of new politics thanks for listening in if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au we don't beg plead beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.